0: From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams and this is The Public Morality. Today on The Public Morality, minister and writer Reverend Terrence Hawkins from the Drum Major Alliance joins me to discuss the legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to The Public Morality. The third Monday in January represents the annual reminder that Martin Luther King is truly an American icon. But some somewhat offer such status may not be for the reasons many would hold uh, in the public discourse. My guess, the Reverend Terrence Hawkins posits that America frequently betrays the King legacy. Reverend Hawkins has made it part of his mission to reclaim what he defines as the authentic King legacy. Reverend Hawkins, who leads the Drum Major Alliance, penned an article two years ago that you can find on the Drum Major Alliance site, which will serve as the basis for the conversation entitled Ten Ways We Betray the Legacy of Martin Luther King. Reverend Terrence Hawkins, welcome to the Public morality.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Good to be back. how and why uh have you made it your part of your life's work to unpack what you define as the authentic king
1: i think for me being someone rooted in the same tradition that birthed Martin Luther King um it's important for that tradition to be um pushed forward into future generations that we, we recover um, something close to what actually uh, happened, and something close to who King actually was, and so for me, King being the face of the civil rights movement, the black freedom struggle of the '50s and '60s, um, and just the important lane that he walked in—it's um, just—it's so—it's incredibly necessary that we recapture and reclaim him um, for the radical that he truly was.
0: Now, when I read your excellent piece on, on Drum Major Alliance site, now I wondered if, if you were making the argument that uh, in every way we've chosen to honor uh, Dr. King in some manner is a betrayal to what you call that authentic legacy. And I wonder, were you going that far? I mean, it's...
1: I wouldn't say that every single way we honor King is a betrayal of the legacy. I would however say that there has been a systemic, uh, well thought out, well executed effort from the moment uh, he was pronounced dead in Memphis, Tennessee to the present to sort of rebrand him and recast him and um, stitch him into the American consciousness in a way that is uh, inaccurate to who he was and what his political project was. So, no, I don't think that every single honoring of King is a betrayal. I just think that it's so prevalent um, and so pervasive um, that the services, the celebrations that take place inside of the American empire um, put forth a King that is nothing like the actual King that
0: lived. Well, it's, it's uh, with time over 50 years, uh, what fifty one years since 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 his death, uh, it's easy to forget that King had what a thirty percent approval rating uh, uh uh America. He didn't have he wasn't over fifty percent among blacks, let alone whites, and when he was right. killed in Memphis. And we tend to forget that. Or right. not even remember because most of us, a lot of us were not alive, so I should not even remember that or acknowledge that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> true. Very true. Um He was despised, hated, rejected, ostracized, um, and really just in an overall tough spot, especially that last leg of his freedom march. Um, Obviously, the poll, the survey that demonstrated his disapproval rating is one thing, but just if you go back in the archives and see the kind of things that are being said about about him by the likes of Lyndon B. Johnson, um, even folks that are inside the movement, Um, Clearly, King is an unpopular figure, um, but he refused to allow that unpopularity um, to cause him to um, suppress what was so deep to the core of what he understood about his calling. Mm.
0: You know, also reading your article, I, I thought of the the work of um, Carl Wendell Himes. I know you're familiar with that passage, but mm-hmm. he, he, he wrote, um, when he writes, especially dead men make such convenient heroes for they cannot yes. rise to challenge the images that we fashion for their lives. It's easier to build monuments than to build a better world. And do you, then, mm-hmm. so I guess my question to you is, do you think this practice is unique to King or is this a profoundly an American trait? To, we have to homogenize whoever the person is in order for them to become an American icon.
1: Yeah, I believe that is just a, a broader move of empires in general and specifically America. Um, I call it postmortem domestication, uh, where you take an individual that was actually a threat to the state and then... Um, again, rebrand them. They go from being a radical to being um, a puppet. They going from they go from being um, someone that you are actually in opposition to, to now being someone who furthers your your project. Someone um, I've said before that Martin Luther King is used like like Ben Gay. Uh, he's a numbing agent for the nation. Just spread a little MLK quote on a story, on an issue, and everything's just fine. Never mind that there's a rotting, cancerous, broken, um, festering thing happen underneath that. Uh, we just rub a little MLK on it, and everything's fine.
0: Um, you know, you touched on this earlier, and I, I and I, I want I wanted to lift it up again. But it, it's a commonly held belief. That it wasn't until, say, Martin Luther King post Selma, somewhere between sixty six and the end of his life in sixty eight, where King became more radical. Uh, <clears throat> is, is is that a fair assessment in your uh, in your in your perspective, or do you reject that notion?
1: I, I reject that notion.
0: Um, one,
1: because there's evidence even um, when Martin was courting Coretta that he held uh, certain radical views, views that we would call radical. Um, and I think throughout his journey, you see um, King's radicalism um, at work. I do believe that the socio-political moment of 1967 pushed King in a way uh, where some of his radicalism was more front and center um, than it was um, in previous years. But nevertheless, I think King was a radical um, from, you know, the Montgomery bus boycott until uh, that fateful day on the porch of the Lorraine Motel. And I'll say that you know, movements change people and they shape people. You're interacting, you're listening, you're you're responding to the crisis of the moment. So I do think there's an evolution. But to say the King somehow woke up in 1967 and suddenly had this radical critique of capitalism, militarism, and racism is just absurd and a absurd and a- historical.
0: Well, if if you compare the King of 67 and 68 to the domesticated version that has him frozen on the steps at the keynote address on the March on Washington. I suppose those two are radical. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And and really the only way you can pull that off is to trap King inside of the I Have a Dream speech or the I Have a Dream riff loop. Because as you know very well, that wasn't a part of his written speech. The speech was entitled The Cancel Check, and King is saying things like, as long as police brutality is a reality for the Black experience, we cannot rest. Uh, He talks about the winds of revolt that must stay, uh, that we must keep pushing into these winds of revolt until justice comes. He talks about um, the bank um, and refusing to believe that the Bank of America had insufficient funds. So that speech is way more radical than... Uh, we give it credit for. But again, if you just take the I Have a Dream speech, the I Have a Dream portion of that speech, which uh, Sister Mahalia was the one who sort of pushed him into that or pushed him off script, it's easy to make King fit for almost anything. You can make him the the patron saint of colorblindness. You can make him almost anything. So uh, yeah, it's easy to you know set that that contrast up between 67 King and 63 King, if you ignore um, the larger portion of the actual speech that I have a dream came out of.
0: Well, as you stayed on the notion of radical. Anything that, that cuts against the norm is by definition radical. So, Agreed. So to your point, I mean, it's fair to say that Montgomery uh, Improvement Association cut against the norm. It is therefore Without radical. Without question. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, Albany cut against the norm. It is therefore radical. Birmingham cut mm-hmm. against the norm. We just go on and on and on. So, the whole, t- the whole 13-year odyssey is one of radicalism.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no way to get around that. Um, apartheid America... Uh, was a stronghold, and to actively, openly, and collectively resist that was a radical move. Um, And yes, people make um, adjustments in how they're thinking about those structures. Uh, Their imaginations are opened up in different ways to imagine a world beyond those current structures, but to, to to push against um, that system, the Jim Crow system, in that moment in the way that they did was radical. Um, it can never ever be diminished or demeaned, which unfortunately in this hour of what I call full wokeness, there are some of our um, Black kin folk who would like to um, belittle uh, the, the incredible and courageous work of um, black women in Montgomery that organized themselves, of of folks like Rose, of folks like Ella, in those early years. Um, but I think we do that to our own peril.
0: I, I want to touch on some of the uh, ways uh, you have outlined how we betrayed the King legacy. I, I, I'll give you, <laughs> I'll give you the bullet points, and then then you wax poetically. That's how we're going to do it here. Okay.
1: <laughs> I'll try. <laughs>
0: Uh, number 1 m- the Mr. Rogersification or Santa Clausification of Martin explain that
1: So this here I'm riffing off of Cornell West and he uh, talks about how we've Santa Santa Clausified King um and the way I would describe that is we've turned Martin into this jolly happy negro preacher with a big sack full of dreams and colorblindness for the masses and uh, forgiveness for guilt-ridden white folks. Um, And in this version of Martin, he is, you know, desperately trying to fit down the chimney of white America. Um, And then in terms of Mr. Rogersification, um, he's this docile, you know, preacher that, you know, is um, in a very nice and Um, um, kind manner, not abrasive way, is uh, begging, pleading with white America, won't you be my neighbor? Please, won't you be my neighbor? Um, And that version of King just completely uh, cuts him off from the community that he's rooted in. Yes, King had love for all all people. He was committed to a love ethic, uh, but his love... uh, What fueled his activism was his love for his oppressed kinfolk, Um, and to to centralize white folks in King's work, I think is to do harm to his legacy. Again, he loved white folks. He attempted to love everyone, even though he didn't like
0: everybody. Well, Um, you made an important point. Then I want you to I want to expand on it. We oftentimes in the public discourse transmute love and like as though King's love for, say, Eugene Bull Connor or Jim Clark or George Wallace somehow meant that he liked them. Therefore, love becomes sort of a uh, syrupy sentimentality. Oh, they didn't mean to do it. And Mm -hmm. King's love is more radical in that he's seeing his humanity industry could be linked to that of bull connor and jim clark and so on and yes. so forth how how, how how do you see that is that, that am i to something there i
1: i believe you are i believe king was part of a tradition um that attempted to see the image of god in all people if i could be theological for a second that attempted to hold on to this reality that we are as king said um um, we are a part of this inescapable web that we're tied to everyone in, in one way or the other. Network of mutuality. And we all have, yes, inescapable web of mutuality, um, um, garment of destiny. And so because he saw the world in that way, it pushed him to look for the humanity in folks that he did not like and to love folks that he did not like. Um, loving people is in no way, shape, or form a sentimental thing. Uh, uh, love is king embodied. It is this this concrete commitment um, to push against everything that stands in the way of liberation and community. And so if I'm going to love Bull Connor, if I'm going to love um, a, a white supremacist, it means I must resist. Um, what they are trying to do in the world, it means I must uh, speak the truth to them, hopefully from a place of love, but this is not a kumbaya moment, this is not a hug fest, um, this is a, uh, a call out this is a call out and a call in if you will, so King uh, was willing to prophetically call out injustice while also keeping the porch light on, uh, being willing to call others in, um, and I think that's a beautiful thing, it's easier said than fleshed out Uh, But nevertheless, I think we have this incredible example in King and others in that moment of what a love ethic looks like in a moment of oppression.
0: Uh, Here's another one I want you to, I I definitely want you to unpack. Multiracial churches that orbit around (laughs) whiteness. That may be my favorite bullet of them all, but I want you to unpack it.
1: Yeah, so... You know one of the responses within white evangelicalism post the civil rights era uh, was the racial reconciliation movement and the racial reconciliation movement um, basically worked under the premise that the root cause of the problem of racism was because white and black and brown folks didn't know each other and couldn't talk to each other and thereby how we solve the problem of race is getting everybody inside of the same room together to be nice and kind, and perhaps even have a shared experience of some uh, some level of meaningfulness. What this ends up being, what ends up happening when it's fleshed out in most, mostly, most, mostly, most multiracial churches is, you have white leadership leading a an institution that is oriented around whiteness, culturally, politically, um, and brown and black and other folks are invited into that space um, and they're, you know, welcomed as members. Uh, But the unspoken and sometimes outright spoken expectation is that the folks that come in that space must hold their critique of structural racism. They must um, assimilate They must embrace white culture and white expressions of the faith without muddying the waters with their own unique expressions. And so the research actually shows that multicultural, multiracial um, churches actually reify structural oppression because what they do is serve as a kind of... um, Numbing agent, if you will, or they're sort of an—they're uh, like an opiate. They—they they make people think that the problem is being solved because they now have a black, brown, or, or uh, an Asian friend, but they're never pushing people to deal with the root of the problem. Which, um, from a theological standpoint, I think would be idolatry, and the physical manifestation or political manifestation of that idolatry is structural racism. And so multiracial churches in most cases do not have a justice ministry. So they claim to be inside of the tradition of King. They claim to be the fulfillment of the dream. But what this does is reduce King's dream to that I have a dream speech loop. It ignores the King wanted beloved community characterized by justice, by equity, Uh, By all God's children having everything they need to survive and thrive. And in most multiracial churches, what you have um, is a white space um, that brown and black folks are expected to, you know, be comfortable in um, and not, you know, make too much of a fuss, fuss about it, or another way of putting it, they want black faces without black voices. They want brown faces without brown voices.
0: Well, I guess expanding on that is that it also, to, to, uh, to echo your words earlier, to, to pull this off, don't you have to negate the sociological aspects of church? Church is theology, yes. but it's also sociology. I mean it's it's it, is. It, it that goes back to why slaves after a hard day's work would go out into Bush Harbor and have church mm-hmm. again. You know, because yes. that's sociological aspect in order to to receive it in a way they understood. And so so isn't mm-hmm. so isn't the mul- that that the attempt of multicultural church as you define it, um, the price for that is negating the sociological aspects of the worship experience.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've told folks um, before, don't come to me expecting applause um, because your church is multicultural. What I want to know is your church anti-racist. And to be an anti-racist church is to think about the socio-political realities. Um, You know, if um, Paul says we're called to bear each other's burdens... Does the bearing of each other's burdens stop the moment that it traffics in the lane of uh, political realities? And in most of these spaces, that is the implicit or explicit expectation um, that we're going to ignore the broader context. Uh, We're just going to get everybody together on Sundays and Wednesdays. Enjoy Jesus. Hallelujah. Uh, But never mind the fact that your black members are going to black communities that are Victims of a long history of it, of disinvestment and dispossession. Never mind that Johnny goes to a school on the side of town that is well funded um, and doing a really a really good job of educating students, and Jamal and Elisa go to a school that's underfunded and they're receiving a subpar education. Those things aren't a part of the dialogue. They may touch on charity. Um, but if I could quote Saint Saint Augustine, uh, charity is no uh, substitute for justice with hell. Mm. And so these are the types of issues that aren't solved with, you know, a food drive or a book bag giveaway. Um, we're dealing with deep systemic issues.
0: Um, a- a- another bullet that that, that um, I think warrants uh, you lifting up is uh, the silence on the violence of U.S. militarism. And imperialism. This really gets to those triple evils that King talked about in that six particular in 67, 68. Now have you expand on that if you would. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's always interesting to um, hear whatever president uh, of the moment um, wax eloquent about Dr. King while being at the helm of the most powerful empire um, as most believe in human history. And so To be able to do that, you have to erase King's critique of empire, King's critique of militarism, King's commitment to a nonviolent ethic. You have to ignore the fact that King said that America was the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. You have to ignore the fact that King connected his critique of militarism to the economic um, status and conditions of poor, black, brown, and white folks. He, in essence, said, listen, y'all spending millions of dollars to bomb folks, and some of our communities look like they have been bombed right here under our nose. And so, um, to quote him directly, he says, a nation that continues year after year Uh, To spend money on military defense, uh, more money on military defense than it does on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual doom. And I think we live in uh, the fruit of that spiritual doom as our nation continues to spend gargantuan amounts of money uh, towards uh, its military, we are the only nation in the world um, that has we have eight hundred over eight hundred military bases. I think if you combine all the other nations of the world and their military bases around the world, I think the total is somewhere around thirty, um, which just speaks to the ways in which we are um, we are in bondage um, as a nation to um, violence. And we are addicted to um, this kind of power that we think produces peace. Uh, but I think King, King, and others make it quite clear uh, that the kind of peace built off of militarism is a false peace.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, here's a trivia question for you. The day King was assassinated, he called in the sermon. He called in his sermon that Sunday. <laughs> What's the name? What was yes. the name of the sermon?
1: Why America? May
0: go to hell. That's it. You, that's it. That's it. <laughs> you see, it's hard. See, it's hard. It's hard for me to imagine a guy getting a holiday preaching sermons like that.
1: Yep, very, very, very hard. And I mean, if you study the the push for the holiday, uh, to be honest, there was a sense in which those who were pushing for it understood, like we got to sort of hide some of these. Radical edges, if you will, of King's legacy, um, and make him a little bit more palatable. So I think there is a some level um, of complicity across the board, um, as you and I have dialogued on before, in terms of the way that King's image is used um, as an icon of an empire.
0: You, you know, I know, I know, I know. You have um, work, worked worked um, very closely uh, with movements in the Winston Salem area, um, and participated with some brothers on, on the national level with Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Is there space for King in the Black Lives Matter movement? Not not as you understand King, but as King is appropriated. Is there space for the authentic King in the Black Lives Matter movement?
1: I I believe there's incredible space. What I have experienced since 2014 after the Ferguson uprising is millennials, Gen Z activists, um, Gen X, um, folks that are more, you know, seen as central to the movement for black lives. I've seen them reclaiming King. Um, matter of fact, the first MLK day post, Uh, The Ferguson uprising, there was this big push, Reclaim MLK. It was a Twitter hashtag, and there were gatherings and actions across the nation. And we've been attempting to grab and claim for ourselves uh, King's authentic witness um, and put it in dialogue with the current moment and I think most folks believe that it, it continues to be very relevant. I think there are rightful critiques. There are ways in which, um, you know, sisters have critiques of um, how far King was willing to go, the ways in which the LGBTQ community can lift up and bring different analysis, and so I think all those things can go together. Um, I wrote a piece for a project I'm a part of called In the Wake, and I, I sort of took King's triplet evils and said, well, might it be helpful in this moment, building off of what he was doing to now uh, speak of the quintuplet evils um, of, again, racism, militarism, um, poverty or capitalism, and then climate injustice and heteropatriarchy. What would it look like to bring those five together um, in our analysis um, and have that lead and guide the way we do our work.
0: Well, if you just take King, the the authentic King as you understand him and try to lay him on top of the 21st century, um, seems to me that's a flawed project without some analysis. And how does these critiques in a macro scope apply to 21st century challenges?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's definitely a danger. Um, I, I think because one way I understand the United States, um, is not necessarily as events like chattel slavery, Jim Crow, post Jim Crow, but the United States as an enduring social construct. Um, And it may have different manifestations, there may be different ways that it is organized in different eras, but there are some like central components to uh, the US, to the United States and how it's organized. That remain, and because those elements remain, much of what King has to say, I think, fits pretty neatly. But there is some nuance that must come out. Where, like, for instance, um, we live in, you know, the neoliberal era, um, and obviously that was sort of coming into being post King's assassination. And so, what what would King's critiques? Of capitalism and inequity and inequality look like in this moment. We have some of the worst wealth inequality in human history. Um, so yeah, I do think that there has to be nuance. There has to be thoughtfulness. Um, you don't want to transpose something that was true in 1955 uh, to 2019. Even when you think about Black communities, there are ways in which you could organize and like collectively do economics in 1955 in a black community that just aren't possible <laughs> in a neoliberal world of nights, 2019. Um, and so you have to keep those things in mind. So I think that's very important.
0: Well, one of, one of the uh, bullets uh, that, that I certainly wanted to um, have you comment on before I let you go um, is, is sort of a post King bullet in my view, which is resisting Trump without understanding the systems that created him. How was that a betrayal Mm -hmm. of Martin the King, and what exactly are you saying there?
1: King's speech after uh, the bombing of uh, the church in Birmingham. 16th Street Baptist Church. Yes, 16th Street Baptist Church. um, That. Tragically, it took the lives of four little girls. Um, and then later that day, uh, we have, I think, two teens that two, were or two other young murdered. Buddies,
0: so a total of six kids. Yes. Them. Yes.
1: And so King um, eulogizes them. And one of the things that he says that I just thought that I think is so relevant in understanding Trump is that he refuses to zoom in just on the act itself. King says, we must zoom out and look at the system and the culture that created um, this act. And so to be anti-Trump and not to think about what led to his emergence is to, in essence, um, stifle um, our desire and our actions to create a better um, America. And so we have to do some backtracking. We have to understand that there is... Um, there's blame to go around <laughs> um, that, you know, in our two party duopoly, um, there's a, there are ways in which uh, Democrats and Republicans all hold some uh, responsibility uh, for the reality of what we have in the, in the White House. And so I've often described Trump as the ugly fever blister on the lip of America. And as you know, fever blisters um, don't come out of nowhere. They're the result of a fever. Um, And there's been a deep fever in the body politic of America for a long long time. And I think it's intensified in in unique ways over the last six, seven, eight years. And Trump is that fever blister.
0: If we embrace the authentic king, as you've outlined, would the third Monday of January be a national holiday in your view? Not should it, would it?
1: (laughs) No, I don't think it would be. Because the legacy of King remains a threat to the order of this country. And so why would we celebrate um, a legacy that interrogates the very ground that we walk on? Um, Yeah, I think it it would not be a national holiday um, if we were truly, truly, as a nation, living into, pressing into um, this this incredible legacy um, that King um, and the movement that made him, as Ella Baker would say, um, have left us. Mm.
0: Reverend Terrence Hawkins, Drum Major Alliance, I want to thank you once again for joining me with your prophetic voice on the public morality. The public morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing the Public Reality to broadcast this week. Normally, the Public Reality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. And for all of us at the Public Reality, I'm... Byron Williams <laughs> uh.